not seen until you let go of what is seen. I'm talking about your money. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We just talk, and then you always find a really good way in, which is, which is nice. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> bam, 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 bam. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> you have proof. She's running around the house right now. Actually, where is she? Where's Arlen? She is in her room watching, uh, I think, some dubstep DJ on her tablet. She's really, yeah. Victoria's got her obsessed with like the big stages and the lights and. All that kind of stuff. She's really into excision. I don't. I don't know. Like I was trying to watch Game of Thrones earlier today, and I heard it. And I was like, "What the fuck is going on?" <laughs> uh, I don't understand it anymore. I don't. I, I. I've reached that age, and I don't have kids, so I, I just don't. I, I don't understand any of that media. Well, I could get into it when there's like a rapper on the beat or whatever, because a lot of DJs are bringing rappers to rap on their albums or whatever. So I mean, I don't know. It's, I've grown. I've grown to enjoy it. I'll always be a hardcore kid at heart. But you're very, uh, I, I, you're very much a hardcore guy. The, the stuff you type, you chat about in Discord. I was like, I don't know a single band in this. I don't even know why I check on this <laughs> channel because it's all you guys talking about hardcore, and I'm going, no, no idea, no idea. Well, a lot of the stuff that uh, Frank talks about, I'm like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> Well, I feel that way, but also about the stuff you're talking about. I'm like, I just, I don't, that really missed me. Uh, <laughs> Did you know any of the rap songs I sent you? I knew some of the rappers, but not necessarily the songs. But I listened okay. to them. I enjoyed that. That I can, that I can definitely, that I get into more than hardcore. Hardcore is okay. just like, and it feels like hardcore is like this just, it's it's a subgenre and not a huge subgenre, but there's so many bands and so much going on in that world that I'm like, I don't have space in my brain for anything like that anymore. It's like filled up. I, I'm, I'm done. I've, I'm, I'm now solidly thinking of grifters all the time. My internet results have been just absolutely bonkers because it just the algorithms think that I'm always looking for fraudsters. This is what the show is done in four short episodes like it's it's starting to plant like this deep seed of mistrust you know like I'm like anybody that's nice to me i'm like what are you up to now i was never like that you know i'm i'm i'm, I'm usually out there and I fully jump in when i meet somebody and i'm like hey this is great we're gonna be friends forever uh unless you turn out to be a weirdo um or a jerk but now i'm like why are you being nice to me <laughs> what do you got going on? You got some kind of pamphlet in your back pocket that you're going to just drop on me right now? Because I, I, I'm wise to that now. I, I've what done... are you selling? <laughs> yeah, what are you exactly? <laughs> and Lord, and I mean, pre-COVID New York, it, it was everything. There's people, you know, out on the streets asking you to sign up for Oxfam and Greenpeace and donate money. And then there's uh, in parts of Brooklyn, especially around where I am, there's in the subway stations, there's always a couple of witnesses handing out pamphlets. You know, I'm just like, please, please put, put the headphones on, put my sunglasses on. And I would just try to walk by and they would still pull and like, I have this, it's this weird thing where people just want to talk to me. It drives my partner crazy. He's like, please. Hey, sir. Hey, 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 sir, yeah. sir, come yeah. here. <laughs> so yeah, even when I try to like record, wait, <laughs> when I try to just put up all the visual indicators that I'm not interested in, in talking to someone it never fails. It just happens. I don't oh. know. The only time it happens to me is like when I go to a mall in a big city like Tallahassee or Jacksonville. I'm not used to like people actually walking up to you and trying to sell you things. Like they're bold. Like the people in the middle of the mall, like, hey, sir, they'll like grab your arm or pull you over. Like, sir, come here, come here. Why don't you try this? Look at this. And I'm like too nice to be like, fuck off. 
So I'm like, uh, yeah, that looks nice. And then they try to give me the pitch. I'm like, I don't. Get- <laughs> <laughs> you know what you're gonna start doing? And I found I've done this a couple of times, and it worked wonderfully. Is you just rant, yell random things at them. So like, they're like, hey, sir, can I get your attention for a minute? I'm like, yeah, yeah, bean burrito, okay, bye. You know, and they just and it it catches them off guard enough where they have to like mentally reset what they were doing and by that time i'm gone i just keep cruising i'm like i'm gonna get on the subway i'll see you later i'm out of here hey sir tater tots so i was gonna say speaking of jacksonville not to give too much of the episode away this this story we're gonna go through today it it kind of like wraps the two of our locations up because uh some of it tangentially takes place in brooklyn and some of it takes place in jacksonville which i thought was really funny a, a scammer in Florida? You kidding? Me. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dalton, what have you been up to, man? I know you're 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 still doing your Game of Thrones rewatch, which has been magical to watch your reactions um, as guess, it as it happens. Guess what I watched today? What the Red Wedding? Oh, I was waiting to figure find out. I was like, I'm, I'm dying to hear when you see it. But I just turned it off. I haven't watched past it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, that was at the time there was the memes uh when that when that episode came out and they were like a reaction meme and they'd be like people who didn't read the books and everybody was shocked and just couldn't believe it and people who did re- uh, read the books were like really smarmy and like yeah i knew this was coming dude like i didn't see it coming at all and like the dude just walked up with a knife was like shank 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 right into uh his wife's belly i was like oh no what's going on yeah I was one of the surprised. I had no idea. We were watching it live, and I just, whoa, <laughs> it was a moment. Well, whenever the band started playing that song, and Lady Stark just kind of looked up there, I was like, oh, no, something bad's about to happen. <laughs> they definitely built the tension, but I didn't know what it was going to be. I was like, yeah, something bad's going to happen. But then I'm like, ooh, I did not expect it to be that bad. Uh, yeah, I'm just glad Tyrion, Jon Snow, and Arya, okay? Those are the only three that I'm like, well, Antonarius for obvious reasons. But <laughs> but John, Tyrion, and Arya, those those are my people. I don't want them to die. As long as they're okay, I'm okay. Yeah, just keep going. You got a lot more seasons, a lot more show to 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 move on. So what have you been up to this week? You know, actually I had a pretty good week. Um you know, we've been at least in New York City, we've been in I hate to call it lockdown, but really just working from home for the past 14 months. And it's weird. You know, I, I work in a smallish office and we're pretty tight knit unit. But this week, I actually got to see some of my fellow coworkers in the flesh. And it was really awesome. And it was a, a really nice change. Um, I've had to go into our office uh, to deal with um, work stuff for a couple of times this week. And there were other people working from the office. And I was real people. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I couldn't imagine. Like, it's never been that strict down here. Like, me and my wife went to Walmart the other day, and we were the one of few people in there actually wearing a mask. Don't you know, COVID's gone down here. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't exist yeah. in Georgia. Yeah, we've just got, I think, I, I mean, and I guess I'm grateful that my my bosses have been overly cautious, you know, and I think a lot of people, and, and honestly, we've we've been able to work perfectly fine remotely so we just kept doing it you know until it's time and things start to open you know they're saying july 1st new york city will be completely open again know about that but i I think there's people are still plenty of people especially when you consider like riding a packed subway i mean i 
before COVID, when I was on my morning commute, I mean, I'm in a subway car just jammed against everybody else. Like no standing room, no sitting room. Like you're so tight. And if you're you know, claustrophobic at all, God bless you. You're going to have a moment. Um, but I mean, it was, yeah, it was, it's crazy how crowded the subways get and like people remembering that and, and changing their habits. And, and I don't know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I think there's a lot of residual fear, you know, some justified, some not. Um, but yeah, the one thing that has happened during COVID is that the car traffic has, got, has gotten a lot worse. I think because a lot of people are taking Ubers instead of riding the train. See, that all seems like a completely foreign concept to me. Like I've yeah. never rode a train, much less a subway. <laughs> we'll get you up here. We'll get you and the fam. We'll let you run wild. I would say it'd be like a moving bus, but I haven't rode a bus since high school. Yeah, no, there's, I had to take the bus too. I have to take the bus to the subway to get to my job. Well, all right. Public transportation in Valdosta did not exist until like a couple years ago. We got Uber and Lyft about two years ago. And where I live now, which is a few miles outside of Valdosta, it doesn't exist at all. Like you can't get an Uber or a Lyft out here. So yeah. the idea of public transportation just blows my mind. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's it is. I mean, this place wouldn't run without it. It's such a big part of the of the everything, and it's cheap. And you know, you can't park anywhere. Parking's insane here, so that's the way to do it. I mean, there's really no need to own a car, right? No, I don't know. I haven't owned a car in probably twenty two, twenty three years. How do you get places outside of New York City? Just, I rent a car. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Cars still do exist here. Just car ownership kind of doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you want to talk about our main subject? Oh, I see you scheming over there. <laughs> it could be Ponzi scheming. <laughs> I went out looking for trouble. I found it. Only I found more than I had anticipated. So today we are talking about... Charles Ponzi, the the namesake of what is the, a Ponzi scheme. Um, and I just want to start off by plugging a book that I pulled a lot of research from for this episode. It is a fantastic book, um, very readable, goes into a lot more detail than I'm going to hit today. I'm, you know, I'm mostly focused on the grift, but this, this is just encompasses so much more. Um, and it's called Ponzi Scheme by Mitchell Zuckoff. And it is a really good, it's it's a good read. It's a quick read. And yeah, it just, it reads like fiction, but it's, you know, it's a, the true story. Um, yeah, just excellent read. So I'm going to give him props at the beginning. I'll probably bring it up again towards the end. Good job, Zuckoff. Yeah, I actually tweeted him. I, I sent him a, a private message on Twitter and just said, "Hey, how much I appreciated, you know, his book." And he wrote me back. He's like, "Thanks, it's really nice to really nice to hear that." He goes, "That book changed my career, um, and so it's has a really special place in my heart." Oh, that's really sweet. Yeah, so it was cool. Um, you hear that? Yeah. Go buy Zuckoff's book. He's a nice guy. Yeah, and you know what? If you, I, I find that you know authors and journalists and um, are actually pretty accessible on Twitter. If you're not a maniac <laughs> you know, like if you're not some some creep or weirdo and you just you know you're giving them a kudos they usually respond um it's kind of wild well it's nice to feel appreciated no matter how it's listen it, it is so easy to be nice to someone and just say something nice especially if you mean it you know why not and it was a good book and i enjoyed it and that's why we have an episode today <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah so uh charles ponzi he was born this is a big name Carlo Petro Giovanni Guglielmo Tibaldo Ponzi. <laughs> I, 
we're so going to say that full name every time I reference him, right? Absolutely not. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> he was born in 1882 in Lugo, Italy. He grew up in a working class neighborhood. Uh, his dad was a postman and his mom was from a little bit more um, aristocratic background. Uh, her father was actually uh, an official for the civil and criminal court of Parma. So she came from money. His dad was um, worked for the postal service. And the only reason I would mention like his parents is because, or his grandfather is because the court system and the postal service are going to be large parts of the story. Like for some reason, those two things are in his life all the time. And they, they're involved with his Ponzi scheme. They're involved. Like, it's just he's it's something that's really weird that that was his background. And it also kind of foretells his future. So he's been like thinking this up since childhood. I don't know if now I think it's just I think it's a weird coincidence, to be honest. Oh, okay. I, I do. I think it, or maybe it's like it's like somewhere deep in his brain. And I don't know. There's something about it that it just comes up. And as a matter of fact, his first job was working as a postal clerk. And hmm. he hated it <laughs> so he that doesn't uh, seem like a bad gig no it's not it just you're gonna learn with ponzi and, and and i could talk about this now he is uh he he feels like he's above regular labor you know he uh, wants to get make a lot of money quickly but he doesn't want he doesn't he, he'll do whatever it takes to make a lot of money quickly what his idea of he looks down on people that do everyday you know manual labor um even though he, he along his life he has to kind of do that to fill in between his his various schemes so he's on um, top. yeah he is and for no real reason i mean it doesn't he didn't come up with a lot of money he just always thought he should have a lot of money uh, and it's gonna be a theme over and over and over again so this might be like after your time but he's eddie from ed ed and eddie i that is definitely like if you ask my little brother he'd get that i don't okay ansley i need you to text your brother and describe eddie actually wilson wilson would know that's oh okay okay um basically the the, his whole thing was he would every episode he tried to come up with get rich quick scheme and he thought like like and his friends double d and ed would try to like no you know this is you know work for this money he's like fuck that i'm selling these jawbreakers for a dollar a pot baby <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a little like that i mean he does work he's working the schemes for sure so I mean, he's got the, the ability to work but he just doesn't he wants it all at once anyway we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit um so he hated being a postal clerk and he actually ended up getting accepted into the university of rome um and, and he's smart. I mean, he's smart. At this point, he's he's uh, fluent in Italian and French, and he'll learn English and, I believe, Portuguese later in life. So, I mean, he's a very smart person. He just, you know, he, again, he just doesn't want to do the work that you need to do, most people need to do to make a living. So, Ponzi goes to university, and he immediately makes friends with the wealthiest students. And instead of studying, he would just you know, run around town with these wealthy kids and going to cafes, the theater, the opera. He was going to casinos and 
eventually he runs out of the inheritance that he was actually supposed to spend on college just from and you know from hobnobbing around and trying to appear that he was wealthier than he actually was just run around having a good time yep so his college career comes to a quick end a because he wasn't going to classes and b because he didn't have any more money and Sounds like my college career <laughs> it's combined too kind of <laughs> um so he his he has an uncle who says that he should go to America because the streets in America were paved in gold and that's where young Italian men would go and and make a fortune instantly and that absolutely appeals to Ponzi and so he gets on a ship and heads to America chasing after that American dream that's it that's it so in 1903 uh, Ponzi boarded a ship bound for Boston and his fortune he had two hundred dollars in his pocket um, almost. All, I mean, the ship was bringing immigrants from Italy to the United States. And almost all the passengers uh, were in steerage class. And steerage is like at the bottom of the ship. And it's just, the facilities are terrible. It's the lowest, you know, class on there. It also, the boat's sway is the felt the worst down there. And so, you know, Ponzi being a snob, like he has purchased a second class ticket so that he wouldn't have to be in steerage. And then <laughs> for, for the rest of his life, he lied about actually having a first class ticket um so <laughs> sounds about right <laughs> yeah all these guys and in their invented all these guys and girls and their invented stories are just it's it's remarkably consistent it's like know? a prototype instagram influencer like yeah, exactly they go to these studios to like pretend like they're flying in on a private jet exactly exactly and then they get in their beat up tourists and, and head home. <laughs> um oh so while he's on the ship he starts gambling and there's a card shark on there and the card shark ends up taking all but $2.50 of Ponzi's money. So he, he he went there, he had $200. He lost everything over the course of uh, 13 days, I believe was how long the, the wow. trip was. <laughs> and this is 1903. So $200 is not an insignificant amount of money. Oh, that's a lot of money. That can buy you a house. <laughs> yep, but he, yeah. Two, yep. And so he got suckered into it. Um, this is from Ponzi's autobiography. He wrote a, an autobiography and it's actually a lot of fun. It's available for free online. We'll put the, the link to it in the citation. It's the way that he writes is very, it's just, I can see him talking the way he writes. He goes, not only had my destination been planned ahead, but my elders had seen to it that their plans did not miscarry. And I had been provided with unalienable wherewithals to get there. Wise old birds, my elders, they had a hunch based upon experience that I might run out of cash before I got to the other side of the ocean as I had been stranded before on much shorter trips. So they had furnished me with a prepaid railroad fare to Pittsburgh by way of New York. If they hadn't, Boston and I would have gotten acquainted that very drizzling Sunday. So his relatives knew that he was going to lose all of his money before he got to America. So they gave him a ticket wow. ahead of time. Which like, I, this kid is such a fuck up that they knew. <laughs> they knew. No, they knew. Um, so he continues, uh, to have landed in America without money was not half as bad as having landed without the least knowledge. I could not fill an office job because I did not speak or understand a word of English. What I knew of other languages did not help. Likewise, my general education was useless. As a student and a man of frail physique, I was not cut out for manual labor. Still, I had to live. And in order to earn a living, I had to work at Not cut out for manual labor. Man, you <laughs> better get some calluses on those hands. So he, he says, um, during the four uneventful years which followed my arrival into the United States, I filled a number of menial jobs, jobs that I detested and loathed. 
jobs that which I was in, invariably underpaid for my needs and overpaid for what I deserve. I filled them as a matter of nece necessity, not of choice. And the net result was that I did not make any headway. I lived and that is all. But to live is to learn and I learned. Every day served to add a few words to my English vocabulary. So he hates all the jobs. So he keeps going. He goes, I tried my hand at everything from grocery clerk to road drummer, from sewing machine repairman to insurance, from factory hand to kitchen dining room. In some of the jobs, I, I lasted no time. In others, I lasted longer. Often I would be fired. Oftener, <laughs> I would quit of my own accord, either disgusted or to avoid being fired. <laughs> this guy goes out for lunch break. He's like, fuck this job. <laughs> I, it, it's, you know, I mean, I kind of applaud. He's very honest about being a failure at everything he tried uh, and getting fired pretty much from every job they ever had. He's traveling all over the place in this four years. Like in this four year span that he's talking about, he lived in Pittsburgh, New York, Patterson, New Jersey, New Haven, Connecticut, and Providence. So he's really making the most of being in America and getting around. I mean, those places are not terribly far apart pittsburgh being but the rest of us kind of get to within a couple hours today obviously this is we're traveling right um so during these years he also changed his name he dropped carlo and started going by charles and he dropped ponzi and took the last name of bianchi which actually meant white um so, charles white charles white charles bianchi um it's worth noting that ponzi was a very pale skinned man uh, which would play into his advantage while he was uh, Italians were considered non-white and treated as such at this time. And Italians that actually came from the south of it were usually darker skin. And so it was really easy to kind of them off. And, and you'll see as we get into that, I mean, there, there's there's a lot of there's yeah, they they're definitely lumped in with the, the non-white category and treated as such and taking like hard man for jobs but because Ponzi was a little bit lighter skin. He could pass. Right. Somewhat. I mean, he's, he was always going to have that accent. It was a weird time. It's a weird time. It's weird to look back at that today. Right. But that was, a, that was a thing for a long time. Italians, not white people treated that way. Insane to me. Like, <laughs> no, I know. Um, so in 1907, Ponzi made the move to Montreal. Uh, and there was a surprisingly large Italian population in the city. So he was able to uh, find work very quickly. Uh, it didn't hurt that he spoke French and his English was getting a lot better. So you could communicate right. with not only the Italians, but you can with the French speaking Canadian in Canadian Montreal. So it's a, it's a me, Ponzi. You're going to have to edit all that out. <laughs> We're going to get death threats. <laughs> I don't think a uh, one Italian American dragon would be too happy with me. Right? No, and he could really hurt you. <laughs> you know, because I'll have a recording of this. Maybe I'll just hold it over your head. I'll be like, don't oh, make me send this to Dom. <laughs> um, so Ponzi landed a job at a bank called Banco Zarossi, which primarily served the Italian community. It seemed like a perfect fit for him. Good jobs around money. I love money. Uh, Banco Zerossi <laughs> was owned by a man named Louis Zerossi, and it achieved a success in the Italian community by promising a 6% return on his investment. And at that time, the average return on investments for banks was 2%. So okay. he was tripling their income. Yeah, that was that was his pitch. Was to, there was another big rival bank in Montreal, an Italian rival bank in Montreal. And so he was trying to steal as many customers away from that other bank as he could. Right. And that bank was offering 2%. He said 6 So when you um, say Italian bank, like, do they have like specific banks for like the color of your skin? No, it was just, it, it was in Italian neighborhoods. So the clientele oh. was primarily Italian. 
in to set you. it up. Um, it's it's kind of like what's in New York is there's neighborhoods, it, less and less today, but you know ethnic neighborhoods all around the city. Like there's you know the Little Italy and there was Chinatown and that kind of thing. So this happened in a lot of the biddies had. These... I was about to say I thought we were going to like a level of racism I didn't even think of. <laughs> no 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 no. It was just no. It's um, no. It just it just happens that this was a, a rival and there was two banks that primarily serviced the Italian community. Just because it was in the community, most of the tellers, I'm sure, spoke Italian because a lot of the customers didn't. Um, so, they, you know, that's what happens. Immigrant populations settle a certain neighborhood and right. build up infrastructure around it. Um, so, yeah, so uh, the 2%, I want to really explain this. There's going to be a lot of numbers in this episode. So if you if I explain something weirdly, tell me because I want to make sure that it's, that it's easy to understand. Um, so 2% was the standard rate of return for a reason. So at that moment or at that time, the banks were investing in Italian securities, which had a return rate of 3%, right? So you put your money in the bank, they take your money and invest it in something that make them money, right? And it's got a steady 3% return. So what would happen was, with the money, they would give you 2% back and then the bank would keep a percent. Hmm. So the only way to raise what you would get back, your interest rate above 2% would be to invest in something that gave you a bigger return than 3%. Gotcha. But you can get in trouble that way because securities are pretty flat. Like there's no surprises. It's not like Dogecoin that's going to jump and rocket and spiral. Like you could potentially take riskier, make riskier investments, but you also run the risk of losing money and then you, you're you done because you've lost other people's money. <laughs> that's not a good right. idea. So that's, that's why, and even today, that's why most banks have kind of the same return rates because they, you know, they're set against whatever securities or whatever that are safe and reliable. So I didn't even, I didn't even, you just taught me lessons. I didn't even know that. <laughs> I just thought I mean, like, all right, the money grows bigger. <laughs> I, well, I, I can't get any deeper on that. I'm not that smart, but that's, right. that's very broad strokes. Okay. So Zerosi, the guy who owned the bank would say that bankers were greedy and kept much more of the returns than they admitted to. And so he could afford to pay out more, the double what is oh so he's trying to sell them on he's not keeping any of your money he's going to give yeah. you all of your money back he's saying he's saying that the other bankers keep more of the profits so he's saying right. hey you know we're getting a i don't know just hypothetically he's going hey we actually get a 10% return your banker is keeping 8% and only giving you 2 i'll give you 6% and give me and take me or, or take four for myself i don't know if that's those are the figures he actually used but that's kind of the logic that he's that he's using right that makes sense to me uh, and at first it worked really well. Like he had investors, people were putting their money in, um, business was booming and he was really proved to be a rival of the other bank, um, by the, by doing this and promising. And what, what time span are we here? How, how soon after landing in America is the He, so he was in America for four years. He landed in 1903 and he was in America for four years. And then he took off in 1907 to, so this is 1907. He got the job. It seems to be the first job he got in Montreal. So this is a pretty quick, like, uh, turnaround here. For what? For starting to become successful. Oh no. So, well, no, Ponzi's working for this bank. I'm th- okay. so Zerosi is his boss. So he's gotcha. he, he's okay. a clerk in the bank and this but this is what the bank is doing and this is kind of tied to to the story. So Ponzi and I'm back it. on track. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Ponzi Ponzi so right now is just an employee um of the bank. Okay. Um so it was working, but when the interest rate was to come due, Zerosi was in trouble 
because he did not invest in he was he was investing in the uh, you know the Italian securities which wielded him through that. So he's saying I'm going to give you six percent, but he doesn't actually have it. Oh no! It was just a, it was a lie to, to win over customers. Um, so Zerosi, the bank's owner, began to steal money from immigrant workers who were sending their funds back home to their family. Oh no! Oh yes, he Zerosi knew it would be weeks or months before they got back from word from their families that the funds hadn't arrived, and then Zerosi would blame the mail system or the Italian bank that he had sent them to, just to kind of stretch and give himself. Well, that sounds like he's setting himself up to fail because eventually that excuse is going to wear out. Yes, and that is the problem with with something. Eventually, there's no way to sustain. It's totally insulting. But I mean, it's also really kind of awful that in order to appease his bigger clients, he's stealing from his poorer clients. You know, right. I mean, the people that are sending money back to their home countries to their it's it's bad all around. Um, but and eventually everything does. Um, Ponzi this time had become really close with Zerosi, and kind of was like this about to hit right <laughs> we're about to be some big drop. uh and sure enough rather than stay in montreal as like the pressure heated up um zerosi packed a bag full of money and headed mexico city he left his bank and his family behind in montreal oh wow You're like he had family <laughs> yes he was he had a wife and children <laughs> he, said, uh, <laughs> he bailed on everything <laughs> jumped the border got out of canada as quickly as he possibly could well, you don't want to go down with a sinking ship. No, and the business, I mean, the the bank went out of business. Depositors lost a ton of money because he had been frauding it and, and he was stealing from accounts, feed of accounts. Yeah, it was it was bad. It was bad. Um, investigators thought that since Ponzi was so close that he had a hand in the whole thing. He really didn't. He didn't do, it was mostly Zerosi. Um, Ponzi was an employee of him. But they were, you know, they they couldn't connect it to him because I don't think he really did anything illegal, other than maybe he knew what was going to say anything. But they couldn't they couldn't bust him. Right. That's why you always put your money in the FDIC insured bank, kids. Well, the thing is, this is 1907. There was no FDIC until 1933. Huh. So that I wonder exist. why. Yeah. So that didn't <laughs> exist, and also it's in Canada, so I don't think there's no, there, there's must be an FDIC equivalent in yeah. Canada. I'm sure. Um, so now he's being hounded. He's being questioned. He's like, I think I need to get out of Montreal. And this is just, this is too much. They're really all over me. Um, and so he decides to leave. But before he left, he went to visit a former client of the bank, which was the Canadian warehousing. Uh, and when he went there, he actually found that their office was empty. And so while he was there, he noticed that there was a checkbook laying around and Ponzi took out a blank check and left and wrote himself a check Um for the amount of $423.58 and then forged a signature. Who the fuck just leaves their checkbook laying around? I mean, it was an office. Like he went to the uh, office. Like, so it was like okay. a company, it was a company checkbook. But yeah, Ponzi swiped a check, forged it, went to the bank and cashed it. <laughs> <laughs> and when he cashed it, like instead of being practical, Ponzi went to all the finest tailors and started buying suits and luggage and everything for his, his exit of Montreal because he wants to look like this big shot whenever he shows up, wherever he does. I'm starting to notice a pattern here. Yeah, it is. There's a there's a very strong pattern. <laughs> it's going to go through the entire story. <laughs> so the the bank officials got nervous or got suspicious, not nervous, and they eventually discovered that it was a fraud. And um, 
investigators went to go question Ponzi and he just immediately says, I'm guilty. I did it. He's terrible at lying that way. (laughs) He's absolutely, he just, he's like, yes, I did it. Um, He was 26 years old at the time and went to go spend the next three years in prison in Canada. Oh, wow. So just three years of his life gone, just like that. Just like that. Um, yeah, so he's he's in jail in Canada. He didn't even make it out of Montreal because he got greedy and forged a check. <laughs> you know what? I mean, if he would have got away with it, <laughs> that would have been a bad plan. Yeah, would have just like skipped the border. Why are you getting popped for four hundred twenty dollars? I, don't I mean, know. I guess you make the you make the check small enough where you don't think anybody's going to miss it. I don't know. That's a lot of money back then. <laughs> It's true. And he'd actually spent about half of it when they caught him. So he only about half of it left. In his- Jesus Christ. <laughs> he can spend a very short amount of time. I mean, this is like a matter of days and he's already blown through $200 on clothes and luggage. He, <laughs> he knows how to spend. Uh, so after three years, he got out and he was uh, really at this time, if he wasn't disliked before, he was persona non grata in Montreal. Um, he had to get out of there. He had even earned the nickname of Bianchi the Snake. <laughs> that was his last name that he was using was Bianchi. And it was uh, actually the owner of the rival bank was the one that was giving him that name. And he had a lot of, a lot of sway. So Ponzi knew he was, he was hot and he had to get out of there. Um, oh, yeah, so, I, don't, I don't blame him. Yeah. I wouldn't either. I'd get out of there. So 17 days after his release from prison, he boarded a train to the United States with five undocumented Italian immigrants. And he was doing that. He was smuggling these Italian immigrants across the border as a favor for a friend of his. <laughs> why you just got out of prison i know 17 days a <laughs> little over two weeks and he's already deciding to break federal law again <laughs> so naturally he gets caught by a customs agent <laughs> of course what happened the other way yep and he spends two months in jail before he finally goes on trial and he he thinks that if he pleads guilty he, he'll actually get a lighter sentence and that's not true. What happened was the five immigrants turned on test turned on Ponzi and testified against him. And so the judge uh, sentenced him to two years in prison and a five hundred dollar fee. She def- or fine. She definitely does not have. Oh, you just got out of prison, man. And he's back in. <laughs> so a few weeks later. Yeah, he's actually in prison in Atlanta in a big federal uh, penitentiary in it. So it come, comes to your state, man. It's, <laughs> it's, this weirdly hits on a lot of locations that we're both familiar with. While in prison, Ponzi became acquainted with an inmate named Charles Morse. And this is kind of a side story, but I think it starts to like show where Ponzi going, you know, like his, his direction, his thought pattern. Um, Morse was a shipping magnet who made an obscene amount of money. The guy was loaded and he was in prison on uh, fraud charges, actually corruption charges, because he made a lot of money, but he also bribed a lot of politicians to kind of do it. And at one right. point he decided that he wanted to uh, corner the ice market in New York. And this is before refrigeration. So you'd get ice, these big ice blocks delivered to your house and you put them in the ice box. To this day, I still call it a refrigerator uh, because of Southern. Yeah, my, my grandparents call it ice box too. Yeah, so, and that's why, because there was literally a big chunk of ice in the, in the thing to keep everything cool. So he consolidated and bought up all of the ice companies and then he immediately rose the prices. So a lot of people couldn't, uh, afford ice anymore. 
And what happened was apparently the city in, in the summer started to smell awful because spoiled food was happening everywhere. Nobody had the wow. ice that they could afford. And so, so you just monopolized the business. Yeah, you mon- yeah, you absolutely monopolized the business. And so the, 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 the city officials started looking into his practice and he knew he was about to get caught. So he bailed and ended up uh, taking $12 million out of the business. Oh, okay. <laughs> so he has a lot of money. Um, and it just, it, I think Ponzi seeing that you can make that much money by not ethical <laughs> business practices <laughs> really resonates with me. Well, why does he think landed that guy in prison? Yeah, well, I mean, look at Ponzi. He's in prison for smuggling immigrants. Like he's, you know, he's, he just is, I, I think he thinks that he's smarter than that guy, even though that guy oh. is fabulously wealthy. Like, I think he always is like, Oh, he did that. But if he, if he, if he, if I was doing it, I would do it a little differently and right. it'd be in good shape. I don't think that's true. <laughs> and we're going to find out that it's not, <laughs> but he, I think he thinks, he thinks very highly of himself. He always thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. Absolutely. Um, so Morse, the, the, the very rich guy, was eventually pardoned by President Taft after he hired like the army of lawyers and lobbyists to petition on his behalf. So they were constantly making phone calls and, and just trying to get Taft to pardon this very rich man because he was rich and he had all the access. And so Taft was eventually like, God, Jesus, leave me alone. Okay. He's- <laughs> it's even weirder. So... Um, the, his legal team were claiming that Morris was very, very sick. And the doctors at the prison actually backed that up based on their um, observations of Morse. Um, what no one knew was that Morse was actually poisoning himself by eating soap shavings before he would have to go to the doctor. Wow. Yeah, so he That's commitment. Yeah, and I mean it's this is again, this is early 1900s. This is not like Dove soap that you could probably eat today and not get sick. I mean these things right. have got like lye and all kinds of really gnarly stuff in them. So he was <laughs> he would poison himself uh, before he went to the doctors. The doctors would say he's really sick and ultimately he was granted a um a pardon on humanitarian he's dying in prison. And immediately after he got released, he took off with his family on a European vacation and was totally fine, totally healthy, just absolutely <laughs> scammed everybody involved. I, I ain't mad at it there. <laughs> no, I remember I was like, what a boss, man. He just <laughs> figured it out and got a reduced sentence. So I just, I, I only bring him up because I, I think that it's just a fun, weird little story, but I definitely think Ponzi's in this like mode where he's absorbing all of this, you know? So right. you've got Zerosi who's, who's doing the 6% and then ended up stealing money from his own bankers. You've got Morse who had a ton of money and, and he did it through paying people off and, um, you know, consolidating a specific right. sector. So you've got, you've got a lot of this. I should also mention he had a, when he was in there, he, um, Ponzi, his cellmate was a mob boss uh, named um, Lupo. Um, you know, just edit that part out. It okay. doesn't, it doesn't, I, I took part of it out and, and, and I should have taken all of it anyway. Oh, this is fun. Uh, so Ponzi, he served the rest of his two-year sentence, and then he got an additional month tacked on because he didn't have the $500 to pay the fine. So they said, one month, and then you're good to go. Well, how do they expect him to get it? He's in prison. I, I don't know. Uh, you could ask that today, too, because they well, yeah, these courts find the shit out of people that don't have the money. 
Um, pay, then pay them six cents on the dollar to go fight fires and do all other sorts of fucking slave labor. But that's a whole nother podcast altogether. That's a very different podcast. So Ponzi gets out. Um, he does not want to be in Atlanta anymore. He mentions how bad the, the Ku Klux Klan is in uh, Atlanta at that time and really wants to, to get away from that because he's Italian and the Klan was targeting Italian people as well. Um, so he went to, weirdly, that that was his complaint because he ended up in Birmingham, Alabama. What, 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 you're moving in the wrong direction, buddy. But All right, listen. <laughs> uh, apparently there was a big Italian population in Birmingham. So that, that, okay. that sort of makes me. So he ends well, up. In all fairness, Birmingham is the least Alabama of Alabama. You're very right. <laughs> <laughs> they have five teeth in Birmingham, Alabama, as opposed to one. Um, so he ended up working for finding a job with a mining company that primarily the miners were Italian laborers. And so he, since he could speak English, was, you know, he would help translate with the Italian workers. He did like bookkeeping. Um, he helped out in the, the medical office, you know, when miners would get hurt and they'd go, would assist the doctors and nurses there. So he kind of did a little bit of everything, but so not a bad gig. Once again, not a bad gig. No, not a bad gig. Not at all. Um, he kind of this when he was working there he got his next big idea so in these mines there wasn't running water and there wasn't electricity and they you know they just sort of the miners had camps around the mine that they would live in and they would get up and go to work. so his idea is to pool enough money from the miners into a big pot and start up a utility like electric and water utility and so it would be sort of community owned Except right. Ponzi would also get a bigger share because he's the one that sort of organized this, but he wanted to give, you know, the mining camp power and running water, which actually is a really good idea. Right. And um, yeah, so so he as he's working on that, there's something that, that pops up that derails that temporarily. Um, one of the nurses who worked for the mining company, her name is Pearl Gossett. She had just been badly burned when a gas stove she was cooking on caught fire. Um Ponzi didn't know Gossett that well, but everybody that he had talked to said that you know, they said nice things about her. They said, oh, she's absolutely a wonderful person. She's, you know, just does so much for this mining uh, community. Um, so he he goes, he speaks with her doctor and says, hey, is there anything I can do? The doctor um, said that the, the Gossett wasn't doing well and gangrene was setting in on the parts that she was burned. Um, and he needed to find volunteers to give skin grafts. So they take off their skin and then put it on Gossett's skin to, to heal the areas. And that none of the, none of the miners had volunteered for the skin graft. So um, Ponzi said, I'll give a skin graft. Huh. And the doctor said, well, how much? He said, whatever you need. And so they ended up taking 72 square inches from Ponzi's thighs. I'm starting to turn around on Ponzi now. I, it's, it's a ride. Yeah, he selflessly, you know, gave 72 square inches. That is a lot of skin. And so he was bedridden for just wrapped, like his legs were completely wrapped up for, for a few months, I believe, in total. Um, at one point, the doctor came back and said, we actually need more skin. And Ponzi said, absolutely, do what you want. And they removed another 50 square inches from Ponzi's back. So there's a woman that he didn't even really know. He just gave like half of his skin to her. Yeah, yeah. And they, he mentions that he like has these giant, like the, where the skin grew back and they grew back even whiter than they were before, kind of like scar tissue. Right. And it was on the backs of his, all over his back. Um, so he heals up. He's obviously bedridden. It's gotta be painful. I can't even imagine what that feels like, especially in that time. 
Um, right, you can't even lay down without yeah. being in pain. Yeah, when he's probably face down when they had the back stuff taken. Um, so when he got out, the plan for powering, you know, providing power and water to the camps had already been realized by someone else. <laughs> so oh, no. while he was in the, in the hospital, someone else came with the same idea and put it into play. And now the camp had running water and electricity and Ponzi had nothing to show for it. But so when does he start being successful? Cause everything he's done up to this point has failed miserably. <laughs> that might be really good foreshadowing on your behalf. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm not going to get I, I, at this point, he goes to Boston. He's, he's had enough of his Southern tour. Um, and he made a few other stops. He was in new Orleans for a little bit. He's kind of hopping all over the place. He, but he decides to return to Boston, which is where, where he originally landed. And he um, meets, pursues, and ultimately marries the great love of his life, a woman named Rose. Uh, he, I'm not going to get into Rose. She's a really interesting character, um, but it's just I'm, I really kind of want to just stay focused on Ponzi and, and all of right. his all of his various schemes. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> but if again, if you pick up that book, the the, the Zuckoff book, Ponzi scheme, there's a lot about her, and I think she's really interesting and really kind of has that you know, stand by your man even when it's, it's <laughs> times are bad. Um, it also is kind of funny because he was, he's very ashamed of his time in prison. And so he doesn't bring it up to her. And it isn't until she's taught, she has a conversation with Ponzi's mother. Rose is on the phone with Ponzi's mom and Ponzi's mom frames the prison time as like, you know, Ponzi being the victim. And it was the, you know, the man and the authorities that really set him up. And he was such a charitable man. All he wanted to do was rescue these immigrants and he got busted for that. And, you know, he was desperate when he took this money anyway. So Rose is thoroughly in love. They're, they're very happy together. Um, but we're not going to not going to go too deeply into that. Um, about six months after they got married, uh, he Ponzi was hired by his new father-in-law to help the struggling family business, which was a wholesale fruit vendor. Hmm. And to be fair, the business was having problems uh, and it was not in very good shape when he when he joined. Uh, but four months into his employment, the company went bankrupt. Oh, no. Another one. Another another venture. This one totally legitimate. So, I mean, it's it's really obvious that, like, everything that he's been involved with has ended in failure. And so at this point in his life, he decides the best thing to do is to start his own business. What? That's a horrible idea. Why would you even think that? Everything you've done has fucking failed miserably. Why would you start your own business? That's so stupid. It's a stupid idea, Ponzi. Yes, he started a business. So the latest idea was something called a trader's guide. And he wanted to create and distribute a new um, foreign trade publication to companies around the world. Because you have a lot of people that are in the import-export business. And he thought, this might be a good idea. See, when you said Trader's Guide, I thought you meant like Traitor's Guide. No, like, not Traitor's Guide. to backstab people. <laughs> no, no. And he wouldn't want to do that. One of his big fears is that, um, and it starts to manifest more and more, is that he's not a citizen. He does not want to be deported. He, so he tries to stay oh, under okay. the radar. And so he's always worried about getting arrested or put, getting put into jail again because he might get deported every time. But how did he even get in the country? To I mean, you could, like you, you could be in the country without a without citizenship you got to think too that this is right after world war one there's a bunch of you know immigrants coming from you know, from europe um, and right. people needed the labor 
Okay. Anyway, uh, the guide would be published in English, French, Italian, German, Spanish, and Portuguese. And he estimated that the first run of the guide would be sent to sent out for free to a hundred thousand. Um, he the way that he wanted to pay for this publication was he would sell 150 pages worth of advertisement. Now, mind you, this is a 200 page guide. So you get this thing and there's 150 pages of ads and 50 pages of actual information for import X. That would be infuriating. I, I mean, I don't know. When's the last time you actually picked up a magazine? It seems about like the right ratio for some of these publications. Uh, I know the last time you picked up a magazine. Bam, bam, bam. bam. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> Future episode, ancient aliens. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so 150 pages of this 200-page publication would be ads. He could sell each uh, page of advertisements for $500 each, and you could also purchase the cover for $5,000. $500? Yeah. I don't know what the going rates at this time for advertisements. That seems a little expensive for now. Yeah, it does. (laughs) Well, no, I think you could... Yeah, if you take into account inflation, I bet it is. But I think his thinking was like it was targeted. It was very specialty publication. Okay. All right. Well, that, that I don't know. Sense. I don't know. Um, oh, he's marketing this towards wealthy people, right? He's marketing this to business and giving them to the right. businesses. So, okay. And so after his first 100,000, he would send out, uh, resend a new edition to an additional 100,000 every six months. So he's constantly upping his circulation number. Um, and he imagined that he'd net about $15,000 on the first issue. Like after everything is said and done, he'd walk away with $15,000. And then you would subsequently double that every time you doubled the circuit. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's, he really didn't think through. So first of all, to find 150 advertisers is a lot of work, you know? Yeah. And like we were saying, willing to pay $500 an ad, that's a huge amount. Of work. And then to find a list of 100,000 recipients, and then an additional 100,000. I mean, it's just like logistically, there was no it's way it's not going to work. So instead of this, this venture didn't necessarily fail. He just sort of abandoned it. He couldn't get any money off the ground, like to get off the ground. He couldn't find anybody to help fund him. The banks turned him down over and over again for project for this project. And so he just sort of walked away. Um, but he also, it was at this time where his next and biggest idea hit him. And this is really going to lead in the sort of insanity of the story. Um, he received a letter from Spain, uh, from someone in Spain, expressing in- interest in advertising in his trader's guide. So he, there was some interest. And if this was a Disney movie, this would have been the only response that he got because this is like <laughs> the one, <laughs> like the thing that really sets everything else into motion. It's the golden ticket. It is. It's like that mo- that one. I only got one response, but man, it was worth it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but inside the letter was something called an international reply coupon or an IRC, but I'll call it for their guest. And it, at first... Ponzi didn't know what it was, so he went to the post office, did some investigating to see if this was a real thing. And what it was, it's an it's essentially uh, an international self-addressed stamp envelope. So you get this IRC that they bought. This this person bought it in Spain, you know, using the Spanish currency at the time. Put it in the envelope, sent it to Ponzi. Now Ponzi could take that to the post office, and they would honor it and give him postage in the specific amount, U.S. postage. So he didn't have to pay for postage. He could send his rents back overseas. Okay. So it's it's like a, it's a you know, voucher for a stamp in your currency. And Ponzi, his idea was to exploit the currency exchange rates in Europe. So 
again, after World War One, ex- the exchange rates are going kind of nuts in, in Europe, primarily America's staying pretty, uh, pretty stable. And he purchased a few and kind of did the math and figured out that Italy, funny enough, which is where he was from, actually had the, the worst exchange. So basically, he could net out, according to his math, which is always a little funny, about a 230% return exchanging an, an IRC from Italy bought in lira to an to a stamp bought in the United States. Does that make okay. sense? So, yeah. But you're not talking, the thing is, you're not talking about a lot of money. It's like cents. It's pennies. It's a five cent stamp. You know, like he bought he bought it for three and a half cents in Italy and then exchange it for a five cent stamp in the United States. And then if he sold that stamp, even with a discount, he would make money. Yeah. But it's not a lot of money at all. No. What does he expect to do with that kind of money? No. Um, no, it's not. You'd have to buy a lot of stamps, a lot of these IRCs, but this is, this is his big idea. Um, and he then in January, we're up to 1920 now, and this is going to move very fast. I, I want just to, just to warn you, like this is this the, everything fast, and I think that that's generally the nature of Ponzi. Up until Bernie made off, you know, Bernie saw these these schemes and sort of re-engineered it a little bit to to okay. make it so he could do this for a long time. But these scams don't don't they they are I mean they just roll and very quickly. So safe to say, Bernie made off. Future episode of if you got oh hundred percent hundred percent. Although there's so many places that have covered him. But we'll give it a shot. Okay. So in January 1920, um, Pon- Ponzi established an- another company, and it's called the Securities Exchange Company. Not to be confused with the SEC currently, which is the Security Exchange uh, Commission. This See, the- when you say SEC, I just think about football. <laughs> We're in very different places. <laughs> Go dog. <laughs> <laughs> So this time around, since he had been rejected by the bank so often, he didn't want to rely on funding from banks. He wanted to include anybody who had money that wanted to invest in this in this company. Um, all you needed was an investment of at least $10 to put in. Not, I don't know. Was that a lot of money in 1920? Mm, I mean, it's, I guess it depends on who it's coming from. Um, yeah, so... This this chapter in his autobiography I like because he's just kind of a ridiculous writer and it's, it's they're fun to read. This chapter of this is called Mr. Ponzi finally discovers an untrodden path to fabulous wealth and takes it. <laughs> third person? <laughs> so the chapter titles are third person and they all start with Mr. Ponzi. The rest I of the book it. is not written in third person. It's first person, but yeah. So I, I, I have to say I, I do... I think Ponzi as a character is a very kind of lovable doofus, you know, for lack of a better word. Um, and you're going to see that continue, but I think the stakes just get a lot higher going right. forward. Um, you got in over his head, basically. Yeah. So here's his pitch, and you tell me what you think of this. If you invested your money in the securities exchange company, you would be guaranteed a 50% return on your money in 45 days. I'll tell you, go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This means that in three months, you double your money. That sounds a little bit too good to be true. Yeah, it very much does. And he was saying, he was saying, he kept telling people, he's like, I'm taking your money, I'm investing it in IRCs with this 230% return rate. So I will definitely have enough money to pay you that return. And I'll still be able to keep a big chunk of, of the cash. So, so that was, was, was that technically legal at the time? Or was this like, uh, some sort of fraud or extortion or whatever. Nope, it's totally legal. Everything was okay. on, on the level at this point. 
Um, and sure enough, he managed to raise um, a total of $1,800 in his first month. So this is January. That's, in 1920s money, that's not bad at all. No, no. And so after 45 days, they were actually paid out their 50%. Okay, so he made good on his word. He made good on his word. However, he's not paying them through his investment in IRCs at this point. He's paying them from the money that newer investors are, right? Uh, He's borrowing from Peter to give to Paul. That's where that impression, that's where this phrase comes from. It's it's very, I didn't put it in my writing, but yes, that's exactly what a Ponzi scheme is. Um, At at least the modern version of it. Now, I will say he didn't invent this scheme. It is it is named after him, but he's not the not the considered the father of the Ponzi. I think it's just and we'll see the the size of this thing. It makes it so hard to kind of wrap your head around that it's um, yeah it, it's it's actually been around for a while. Um, there's a guy in Brooklyn, 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 <laughs> in 1899, so about 20 years before this happened, uh, named William Miller. And he's generally considered to be the inventor of the modern Ponzi. So in 1899, again, he was tired, got tired of working a $5 a week job at a brokerage house. So Miller set up an investment advisory named the Franklin Syndicate in Brooklyn, New York. His pitch was simple. You get a 10% return on your money every single week, um, which would ultimately name him, give him the nickname, the 520% man. Because after a year, you would have earned 520% on your money. Uh, that's, that sounds way too good to be true. Yeah. Uh, by comparison, after a full year of investing in Ponzi's organization, company, scheme, whatever you want to call it, you actually got a 400% return. So this guy was actually promising even more than Ponzi was in terms of this guy, uh, his scheme grew rapidly and as people received their returns very quickly spread the word to other people. Uh, it also didn't hurt that Miller himself taught a Bible class and was telling... Of course he did. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, and was, he was able to encourage all of the students, his flock, to invest in the invest in investment. Um, he got so big and an operation was so successful, he even had got, was able to open an additional office in Boston of all places where Ponzi's hmm. are from. So it, this is not the first time a Ponzi scheme has come to Boston. In fact, one had happened you know, 20 years before Ponzi got there. And for some reason, no one seems to remember that. And they, they love what Ponzi's offering. It's starting to seem like Boston is just full of bunch criminals. <laughs> I'll get in the car. <laughs> go to my house and go to my room. <laughs> uh so have I alienated everyone? <laughs> we're getting there. I actually have a checklist, so we're just going to go through <laughs> each group that you've you've <laughs> turned off. <laughs> um, so Miller was exposed by the New York Herald, but not before he had defrauded people out of um, over a million dollars in 1899. He got busted. He know he knew he had to get out of town quickly, so he gave all the money that he was managed to pull out of the company for himself, which was two hundred and forty thousand dollars. He gave it to his attorney, and he skipped town. And you're not going to believe where he ended up? Florida? No, Montreal. Oh, he's going full circle again. I, yes. So this is all happening like twenty years before, and it's remarkable how similar this thing is. Is and and I don't actually know if Ponzi had any sort of knowledge of this guy i mean certainly it was you know seven years later when 
Ponzi shows up in Montreal, people are still talking about this guy because it was a scandal. Right. And I can't imagine that people didn't remember him in Boston. You know, well, my shows. next question was going to be, did they ever cross paths? As far as I know, no. not okay. physically, but there is the, the he, Miller's going to come back in. Well, do you think Ponzi got any ideas from Miller's story? I, I don't have any proof of that, but it wouldn't surprise me if that happened. It's like, okay, I can do this, but I can do it better. Right, right. Exactly. It's, it's, it goes back to that Morse uh, right. guy that he was in jail with. And he was like, I, if I did this, I would do this smarter and not get caught. Right. Uh, so he was, Miller was eventually arrested, brought back to the U.S. for trial. He was sentenced to 10 years in jail, but was granted a pardon after, se- wait, I have to go back. So we'll go back to that part where I said about his lawyer, giving his lawyer 230000 Um, So he's in Montreal. So the attorney had instructions to send the money to Miller when like he didn't want to cross the border with all that money. So his lawyer was supposed to send him little bits just to keep him afloat while he was in Canada. That didn't happen. The lawyer kept all of the money. And did not send any did. Of it. What's he going to be like? Hey, this man stole the money I stole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, he was eventually arrested. Miller was brought back to the U S for trial. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but he was granted a pardon after seven when he agreed to testify against the attorney who had stolen his money. Wow, these dudes just love stabbing each other in the back. I it's know. Yes, yeah, so his attorney got busted for fraud and embezzlement, and they went to him and said, "Hey, we'll 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 grant you a pardon if you'll testify." And he's like, "Absolutely, this guy stole from me too." This is like an episode of the Days of Our Lives. This is crazy. <laughs> so after his release, he uh, moved to Long Island and opened up a grocery store. That's it. That's, that's the end of the story. That's the not he'll he'll come back. He's going to come back and for a little bit later in okay. the story. But yeah, I mean that's that's that, again as far as I can tell, that's the end of his life as a criminal. <laughs> Could you imagine going to like your local grocery store and looking at a guy and not knowing that he embezzled what in today's money would be thirty one million dollars? Yeah, that's insane. Yeah. So back to our our dear friend Mr. Ponzi. Um, after the initial returns came back of those original $1,800 investment, the word of mouth spread crazy fast. So from February to March, the total investments that people had given him had risen from $5,000 to $25,000. Yeah. Business was growing. It was growing so quickly that Ponzi actually had to start hiring agents to go out and find investment. And what he would okay. do is he would pay the agents a commission to get the money. So that was their incentive to go out and get as much money for Ponzi for the for the the securities exchange company. I think the the exchange rate or the commission rate was about ten percent, which is significant. Especially That's not bad you, at all. If you get two thousand dollars, you're two hundred of it, and they're gonna you know they're gonna get the yeah. It was pretty pretty. So he's doing like any business would, expanding his business, even though he's stealing from one guy to pay another. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Um, so it just goes bonkers at this point. In May of that same year, he started in June. In May, he had made 420000 By June, it was $2.5 million. That's okay. Yep. In July, he was pulling a million dollars every week. And by the end of July, he was making a million dollars a day. Wow. And he's still stationed in Boston, right? Yeah. He's, he stays in Boston. Now he's got agents and he's opened up other locations um, throughout the East Coast. So he's got he's got agents all over the place that are pulling in. But yeah, I mean, he's making a ridiculous in and, a very short amount of time. Well, I can, I'm starting to see like the appeal to this, but it's one of those things like you'd have to get in and get out quick and not be too greedy. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that's the downfall of a lot of these guys. They see how much money they're making. Like, okay, if I last one more week, I'm going to pull $7 million. Yep. 
and yep. so it leads to the downfall. And so he, I mean, he, Ponzi, again, loves to spend money and he goes crazy, just absolutely goes bananas. He buys this mansion um, in uh, Lexington, Massachusetts, which is right outside of Boston. And he bought it for $29,000, which seems like nothing for a mansion. Right. Again, 1920. He paid $9,000 cash and gave them a security exchange company voucher for (laughs) (laughs) $20,000. So now he's paying for a house with these vouchers that he's selling to the public as an investment tool. I would be lost at this point. Like, okay, who do I owe money to and who do I not? I mean, he's got bookkeepers. I mean, they do keep records of everything so that he knows who's got what. And when it, you know, when it, when their investment matures and, you know, he mails them letters when they, you know, have their balances have matured. And, and I think the big hope here is that with any of these schemes is that people don't pull their money out when it matures, right? If you, right. they roll it over and they want it just to keep accruing over and over and over again. So then you don't have to pay out the cash, right? Right. And you could, you could then, that's when you start cooking the books and saying, oh yeah, you have X amount, which includes all of this matured interest, but that's just a, that's a lie on paper. Okay. So it's a- is a multi-level marketing scheme and a Ponzi scheme like in the same category? Because it's starting to sound a lot alike. There's some overlap, but Ponzi's just cash. Like there's okay. like MLMs have this illusion of like you're selling something, okay. but that like you're actually getting a product. This is just purely financial. Like there's no, and that's why MLMs can get away with doing what they do. Like there's that's why they're hard to regulate because they're like, no, we're a company that that sells directly to consumers, but they're sort of set up like a, right. Um, But since there is material goods, they tend to be a lot sturdier than a Ponzi scheme. Ponzi schemes are very, very fragile. Like you gotta, you gotta be careful or it'll all fall apart very quickly. Get in, get out, run away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just think it's really funny that he paid for his house with the, the, the I couldn't get out. When I read That's that, I was incredible. like, that is incredible. Like the <laughs> balls on this guy. <laughs> Could you imagine doing that to a bank now? Like, Hey, listen, I'm going to give you 8,000, but a hundred thousand is in these vouchers. Yeah. Like <laughs> here's some crypto coin that you've never heard of. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like Doge? <laughs> <laughs> um, so he also bought a, a car, which was called a locomobile, and they were a, like a total status symbol. There weren't very many of them made. You had to pay a ridiculous amount. So, you know, he's got these incredible suits. He, was, he and his wife were going to the jewelry store once a week. I mean, they were living they, big. They had a bunch of servants in their house that like cooked and cleaned and waited on them. And he's, 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 he's total baller at this point. And people love him because he's making the money. You know, they all right. think that they're making all this money. So, I mean, he can do no wrong. And they they just, and they love that he's this immigrant that came in. He's, he is sort of exploiting a system because as far as they know, he's doing this all through these IRCs. He lived like a rock star. Like, you know, I mean, he just, he had everything and he, and people just loved him. Like he was, he was making them rich. He was, he had exploited this, this, this thing with, you know, the government and people, you know, have always had a distrust of the government. Um, and, you know, because at that time, they also thought he was exchanging these IRCs, which he definitely was not doing. But that was still the line that he was selling. Well, they're thinking, like, like the man's holding me down, but this guy is kind of like, yeah. it, 
swilling from the government giving to the poor, like this kind of fucked up Robin Hood that's not actually giving you the money. <laughs> yeah, hundred um, percent. So he Ponzi takes these the money um, and he starts to invest in local Boston businesses, and he also starts investing his money into. Um, a few different banks. He's like trying to diversify his money rather than, you know, the stuff from the securities exchange uh, company. He started depositing a lot of money in one bank in particular called the Hanover trust bank in Boston. Uh, The goal was he wanted to become the largest depositor. So he could, when he did that, he could actually probably take over the bank at that point. You know, like if you are responsible for the largest account in the bank, at that time, he thought he could become the bank president or be on the board of directors. So he, he did two different things. He started secretly buying up shares in the bank. And then he went in and he deposited $2.7 million in the bank. Now, this is a bank whose total assets at that time were $5 million. So this guy comes in and drops $2.7 million. He is now the biggest client of Huh. Does that work? Does banks work like that? Like buying shares? I don't think so anymore. Well, I don't believe so anymore, unless it's a publicly traded company, like Citibank is publicly traded. Um, but it's this was this was different. I don't think by being, and I could be wrong, but I don't think by being the biggest depositor, you're named the president of the bank. I think today <laughs> the president of the bank is actually a real job that you apply right. for and you have a salary. It was, I think it was a little different in 1920. Yeah, times have changed. That's true. Um so yeah, so $2.7 million at a $5 million bank. He's he's now the big dog. He also, so while he was buying up these stocks, he started making these backdoor deals with some of the other uh, stockholders in the bank. A lot of these guys were uh, Italian businessmen. He gave the money for one of the guys to own a house. Like he's like, here, I'll loan you the money. You don't have to go through the bank. Just go through me. But I want your voting shares. So I want to, I'm taking over this bank and I need your help. And so he was doing all uh. these favors and working behind the scenes. Uh, and, it, and it paid off. Uh, he was soon named the director of the bank and controlled a, a gain, sorry, a controlling interest. So he more or less, this is his own personal bank. He really is the white snake. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, it, it did two things. It One, it settled a grudge that he had against the bank because that was one of the banks that had turned him away time and time again. Mm. So now he's going, hey, remember when you rejected me? I, I run this bank now. But this it also... It turned into a vendetta. Right. But it also... This is the really clever thing. It also sort of legitimized him. He, he, he could now say, hey... I'm not ripping people off. This is not a scam. Why would someone who owns a bank essentially pull a scam on people? He's like, I'm legitimate. Here are my creds. Bank. There's Hanover Trust Bank. It's all mine. Huh. So that it was actually really, really shrewd. Well, I mean, I can see why people would trust him at that point. Yeah. He's good for the money. He owns a bank. Yeah. That's how people are going to, I mean, that's how you process it, right? I mean, you're not going to get in the intricate. There's obviously a lot of you know policies in place at the state and local level, federal level, things you can and can't do. And he doesn't technically own the bank, but most of the people investing don't know the difference. Well, not even owning the bank. You look at this guy like, okay, he's got this mansion. He's got this local mobile. I see him taking his wife to the jewelry store every week. He's obviously got money. So if he says he can make me money, I'm going to believe him because yep. he's got millions of dollars. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was he smoked cigars with a – and he had a diamond-encrusted cigar holder. I mean, like this is – 
Dude, I am robbing this man on site. <laughs> he's, he's a little man too. He's not very big. Uh, he actually brought in, he, he hires a lot of security because they're dealing with a lot of cash. And he brings in the Pinkertons, which are like uh, a private, very notorious private security firm who are actually still around to this day. Uh, but they, they sort of were the, before the FBI, the Pinkerton company would hire to come protect them it sounds like some shady elite shit it is some shady (laughs) shit it is some shady shit then it is some shady shit now the pinkertons they're not a con so (laughs) we're not gonna cover them but anybody wondering go look into that history it's fascinating okay um so because ponzi's living so big and he's handing money out to all these the biggest this frenzy i mean you see how much he's going from eighteen hundred dollars in a month to a million dollars a day in seven months. I mean, it's just absolutely. And ha- so how do you not know about this? And he's really likable. Everybody likes him. He talks to the media and, and uh, you know, the report, like reporters surround him. And he's always so jovial and affable and people just genuinely like him and they trust him. Yeah. That's why they're giving him the money. So there were, and, and, and with that, there were plenty of people who looked to take advantage of, you know, and there was also a lot of people looking at his business pretty quickly, you know, like you raise this exorbitant amount of money. Right. People come around and start asking questions. One of my questions is, where are the IRS at this point? Because if this happened today, they would be knocking down your doorstep with an audit. Weirdly, they don't actually, it, this will answer itself, but they don't really play a part. Okay. And I think it's because of the time frame of how, you know, of when the scheme is in operation. A Boston furniture dealer who he had, okay, wait, hold on. I'm going to start that whole thing over. So there were plenty of people looking to take advantage of Ponzi, and there were plenty of people starting to look into the business. Uh, One of them was a Boston furniture dealer who early on had loaned Ponzi $200 to get this operation off the ground. He decides to sue Ponzi for a million dollars. And his claim is that even though he had been paid back the $200 plus interest, he still felt like he was a partner in this business because without his money, Ponzi would have never been able to exist. Like there would be Is there no a company. contract motherfucker. <laughs> right. So he brings this giant lawsuit saying I'm Ponzi's partner and I should be paid as Ponzi's partner. Cause he sees Ponzi making all this money. And he's like, well, he made that money on my $200. And even though I've been paid back with interest, I should still have a say. I feel like that shouldn't hold up in court. It, so it went to court and I actually don't even know if it went to court. Uh, Ponzi settled with the guy. I'm not sure for how much, but the guy did walk away with some money out of this whole ordeal. And I think it was just Ponzi was like, I can't be troubled to deal with this right now. I'm right. literally printing money. Just here's some money. Go away. It it's wasn't like the million dollars. Falls at, it's like when somebody falls at Walmart and you know they've got billions of dollars. They'd rather just pay this person to go away than go through the trouble of hiring lawyers on the court. Yep. hundred percent. hundred percent. So the lawsuit gets settled and a reporter from the Boston Post catches wind of the suit and publishes a story about it on July 4th, 19th. Um, instead of, I, I think, so at this point, you're going to start to see the Boston Post as kind of a character, a player in this. And they see him and they kind of, they, they want to investigate and figure out what is actually going on. Because the suspicion at this point in July, and this is the suspicion of a lot of people, is there's something going on that we don't know. And we want to find out what it is. And we want to tell everybody to be careful or we want to explain to them what's going on so they can make better decisions. Yeah. I mean, I I would think that too. This guy went from the bottom to the top in just a matter of months. There's got to be something going on. So they published this paper or they published an article about this million dollar lawsuit from a furniture dealer. And it has the exact opposite effect that they were looking for. People double down 
and give Ponzi more money because they think if this guy is being sued for a million dollars, he's clearly got a lot of money. Right. So let's, let's, he knows what he's doing. Let's invest in, 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 in his company. And so it's, it's the exact opposite of you're like, why? I mean, should we should be suspicious that he's cheated this guy out of a partnership, but no, they, they take the opposite, the opposite. Yeah, uh, I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and as for investigators that came through, he had a lot of those, he was very accommodating. If they came in, he would answer their questions. He'd sit down, sit them down in their office and, and, and answer whatever he does. But he also, the way he talks and the way he like formulates these math, the math for this thing is really throws people off and it just kind of spins them around. Um, and so I just want to read this little bit from his autobiography about a conversation he's having with a couple of postal inspectors. Um, this is what, this is the way I would put it to him. Let us assume I say that France needs $15 million of front. I borrow in this country, $1 million at 50% interest as I am doing now on a small scale, the million dollars at the current rate of exchange is equal to 15 million of francs. I send a draft for the French government with the understanding that France will issue me 50 million of international reply coupons. France can obtain the coupons from the Universal Postal Union on an open account. As soon as I receive the coupons, I exchange them here for stamps. Then I sell the stamps at a 10% discount. Let us assume that I pay a 10% commission to the agents who have been instrumental in obtaining for me $1 million from the, the transaction, insofar as I'm concerned, would show the following balance. So he's saying, borrow a million dollars, buy 50 million IRCs from France, come back over here, turn those into 50 million five cent stamps, sell those at a 10% discount, and he would make this. So this is the way he does. It. Wow. Yeah. So he's saying the cash from the sale of 50 million uh, five cent stamps, it would cost him $2.25 million. He would owe the note holders, the, the, the loan that he took out, he would owe a million dollars. So he'd pay a million dollars out of that 2.25 million. There's 50% interest. So he would actually end up paying him 1.5 million, not just the 1 million. Right. Then he gives $100,000 to the agents as commission and the gross profit that he would make would be $650,000. So he's throwing all this, all this stuff out. Like he's like, so you see, if I did this and this and this and this and this, if I sold 50 million US stamps at a 10% discount, then I, like, this is where the profit comes. And on paper, it works. Right. But it doesn't work anywhere else. Because <laughs> who's in the market for 50 million stamps? Exactly. You know? So that's, that's what I was trying to wrap my head around. It's like, who is the fuck is buying all these stamps? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the investigators did, and this is what got why a lot of postal inspectors would come. They're like, he's not doing anything legal, but he's also not doing what he says he's doing. Like, it's just the amount of stamps that he would have to import from overseas would take up, literally would fill up ships. Right. And at that time, the post office estimated there were only about 27,000 uh, IRCs in circulation. So that is not even close to the money or to the amount of IRCs that he would need in order to pull this off. But right. it's the lie that he's and just keeps going just to legitimize his operation. So it, things are moving crazy. We're going to jump kind of towards the end of July. Uh, on July 23rd, Ponzi hired a publicity man named William McMasters to handle all of the media <laughs> attention. That's not our real name. McMasters. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and so he hires him on the 23rd on the 24th. There's another story run in the Boston post about Ponzi. Um, this one read uh, when I reread it, it definitely feels like a puff piece. And it talks about how 
to me, it reads like a puff piece, but I could understand what the post was trying to, they were saying, this guy had nothing and now he's got all these millions. Like, how does that happen so quickly? Right. They they have to be really careful about libel at this time because the libel laws are very lax and they could get sued. And obviously um, at this point, Ponzi probably has way more money than the newspaper. Um, right. So they were very careful, but they were just saying, isn't it suspicious that this guy who came to America with $2.50 doesn't look like he ever had money the entire time he's been here is now pulling in a million dollars a day. So it's the equivalent today. This might have like allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Yeah, it's the allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. But they didn't allege anything. They're just saying, think for yourself. And right. people did. And they got a bunch of like, a huge search in new investors based on the newspaper. <laughs> Of course. So they're over two at this point. They're they really they're really trying to take him out. I think the people are thinking like, I don't give a shit if what he's doing is legal or illegal. He's obviously making money, so I'm going to give him my money. Yeah, I, I think that's 100 percent it. And I think it, it, when there's this much money involved, I think the more pressure media and local officials put on Ponzi, the more people are siding with him. You know, and saying no. This, right. This is he's giving us money. All the rest of you can jump off a bridge. Like, <laughs> it's it's kind of crazy. Um, at this point, this is, this just gets absolutely bonkers. There was now a rival operation promising fifty percent returns in the same building that Ponzi was operating out of. So <laughs> this guy who was an electronics repairman um, started a company called the Old Colony Foreign Exchange Company. And he was basically trying to steal Ponzi. Huh. Uh, and it would help that he was in the same building. Did Ponzi go down there like, hey, man, what the fuck? Yeah, he was furious. <laughs> yeah, he was furious. He was like, this guy's a hack. Don't listen to him. Anybody that would listen, he'd say, duh, this guy's not for real. And, and the press would go, well, but you're offering the same deal. And he's like, yes, but my operation is entirely different. This guy is a scam. I'm for real. <laughs> yeah, he was he was not happy about it. Um, and, and we'll, he'll come back. And so on July 26th, that's just two days after that piece ran the one that actually encouraged people to invest even more. Um, the Boston post again, posted or ran another story related to Ponzi on the front page, but this time they had to approach it a little differently. They said, since we don't have any evidence, we can't, we don't want to, we want to avoid any libel charges. What we're going to do is we're going to bring in a financial expert and we're going to ask him questions and we're going to get his opinion through an interview as to what's going on. Okay. And so the guy that they call is, his name is Charles Barron. And he actually was the owner, I believe at that time he was the owner of the Wall Street. And he was just considered this like brilliant financial mind. He just, this is his world. He knows the ins and outs of investing. He's been very, very successful. Um, so Barron, in this article, Barron punches two really big holes in Ponzi's operation. Um, he, the first part was that he said that, Ponzi would have already had to have had a lot of money before starting the securities exchange company because he right. would have had to purchase IRC in advance of operating in advance of offering these big returns. Right. right. You gotta have money to make money. Right. You have to have these. So you've got to be able to have money. You you're not gonna be able to offload enough of these th things based on investments over 45 days, right? You're gonna have to have operating money at the at the beginning, buy a bunch of IRC, then you get these investments from people and you've already got the IRC. So that was one that he was like, but that we know that's not the second was, and this was actually probably the more devious thing, is that he pointed out that Ponzi didn't seem to be investing in his own company. The Ponzi was taking his money and buying businesses, putting it into multiple different banks, you know, at, at, at much lower rates of returns. And so uh, 
Baron was basically said, why, if you're, if you're getting a 50% return on your investment in your own company, why aren't you putting your money back in? He's trying to create a fail safe, a safety net. So if all this goes down, then. Yeah. Or he's just, this is like, I I think Baron, um, yeah, I think Charles Baron sees right through it and knows exactly what's Mm -hmm. going on. But since he doesn't have any solid evidence, he has to sort of walk around the issue and say, Hey, if this was legit, there's no way that Ponzi wouldn't invest in it. Right. And he'd be dumb not to. He'd be dumb not to. It, he'd double his money in, in 90 days. I mean, why wouldn't you do that? But he's getting all the other people to work. And then he's taking his money and putting it elsewhere. So this actually did cause a run on the company. And they uh, people pulled around $2 million out of their investments. They, they, like, were, they panicked for a little bit. Ponzi, his company had the money. They paid him out. He was always happy to pay people out that didn't believe, you know, and that's part of his, his thing where he's like, yeah, if you don't believe me, come get your money. It's there. And so after that run, people saw that he was able to pay anybody who wanted it, their money back. Right. And they started depositing more <laughs> because he had proved that, Hey, I mean, if I'm a con, if, if this is, if I'm not on the level, I wouldn't be able to play this back. Right. But come I am on shit. the level. Come, <laughs> I don't care. If you don't want to make money with me, I don't care. Here you go. And that just made people go crazy. And they were like, we want to mess with you. He's, he's for real, guys. <laughs> Look at the balls on this guy. Let's, let's throw our money at him. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and they just, yeah, it, it's, it's wild. that There's just this thinking. Uh, and also, like, while this is all going on, I, I will say, and, and you mentioned it earlier, there were a lot of moments when Ponzi wanted to just gather up as much money as he could and just take off. You know, he, right. he was like, this is, he knows it's not sustainable, but I think his ego and I think that he thinks he's smarter than he is kind of goes into play. And so every time he would start to question whether he should jump out, he would devise some scheme to to, like some idea. He's like, what if I do this and this and this and this, I can keep going. So I'm going to try that. We're going to keep it. And he never, he never bails. It's just one more week. It's just one more week. Exactly. It's like chasing a hit, you know, it's right. like, Oh my God, I just, this is going to be, you know, chasing the high. That's the expression. Yeah. I'll take one more hit of this and I'm done. Yep. And then you do that 15 more times. Yeah. So, I mean, he, he knows, he knows what's going on. He knows that the foundation's got cracks in it and he, he it's, it's only going to be a matter of time. Um, so, Actually, the same day that the Charles Barron piece is post is published, um, Ponzi telephoned several local sta- and state officials asking for a meeting. Um, he, the investigations were absolutely crazy. They were just coming at him from all angles. And so he thought, I need to outsmart the investment. So what he did is he went in and he said, hey, I want to make a deal with you. And we're like, what do you want to do? He goes, you want to see it in my business. And I want to prove to you that it's legitimate. So you'll go away. And they said, okay. He said, so I'll let you audit my And That doesn't sound like a good idea. So (laughs) we'll, we'll get back on that in a a couple of minutes, but he, he says, I'll let you audit my book. And they said, Oh my, absolutely. Like they're not going to say no to this. Right. And then he says, but it doesn't make sense that I could continue doing business while you're auditing my, and they said, okay, that makes sense. And that was kind of the trap that he wanted to lure them in. And so he hmm. said, I'm going to phone the co- my company and I'm going to tell them to do not accept any new deposit. And if people want to pull their money out before it matures, they can pull their money out. They're not going to get any interest on it, but they can have their principal balance back. And that's fine, but I'm not taking any new deposit. And they said, that sounds like a great idea, right? I mean, this, this sounds like if you're an investigator, this is your dream come true. Ponzi's right. thinking is... If a bunch of people pull their principal out, he's not going to have to pay them that 
it, the interest on that thing. Right. So he actually is saving his ass a little bit by tell, by causing a panic on his company and people withdrawing before their investments mature. So he thinks that by doing this, he can narrow the gap between what he says he has and what he actually, and that right. somehow okay. there's enough to make, to close the little window and that maybe the audit will work out in his. There's a whole lot of maybes in that sentence. I don't feel like he yeah. was uh, ready for. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is an example of his, his little schemes, like his little mini schemes within the big scheme. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I'm so smart. I'm going to do this and it's going to happen. Um, so yeah, they said, absolutely. Uh, they, they agree hundred percent. They uh, find an auditor and the audit begins. Ponzi brings his books, lets them know. Um, so he also knew, again, he caused a run on his own bank or his own operation because he knew as soon as the media caught wind of this, that they would immediately publish that Ponzi is not accepting any new deposit and people freaked out. And that's what happened. And so a lot of them withdrew their money. Some of them put them into that, that rival company that was like the, <laughs> they, they saw that opportunity. They're like, come to us. We're still taking deposits, having no idea why Ponzi would do something like that. They just thought that this was a, a, a great sign of their luck and they could take. Were they also like pulling a similar scam? Yeah, there was the exact same thing. Exactly. Okay. But, gotcha. they, but they didn't have the backstory of the IRCs. Okay. They, they didn't, they didn't bother to explain where the, like, they're just like, Hey man, just go give us your money. Yeah, <laughs> it, It's like a, it's a co-grift, you know, it's like a, now these two grifts are existing side by side, literally, literally side by side yeah, in the same building. <laughs> um, so, he did that and, and he's working with these local, I think there were local district attorneys, but he also had another guy who was looking into his business and that he was not aware of. This man's name is Joseph Allen and he is the bank commissioner for the state of Massachusetts. Hmm. And he takes a different approach. He doesn't want to alert Ponzi that he's looking into his operation, um, which, you know, the other guys are very much involved because Ponzi. He was mainly concerned that with the amount of money that was being withdrawn from, uh, from the security exchange company's accounts, bank accounts, that there was a good chance some of the bank accounts would be overdrawn and not know about it. And so they would continue to give out money because it was happening so quickly in such large amounts. And that could, um, those, those overdrawn accounts could really hurt a bunch of the banks in Boston that were doing business. Right. So they would continue to write checks. It's not like there were computers to keep track of your, your balance. Like your balance wasn't settled until the day after. So like they get these checks and they're not going to know until a few days after. Yeah. They're just clearing them because of how much money he has in these banks. And they think, Oh, he's probably good for it because he's been good for it in the past. You know, let's just continue to, to, to cash these checks. And so what this could do is lead to a massive multi-bank failure where the bank no longer has the funds to cover any of their other clients. Like these accounts are so overdrafted that now you're dipping into other clients' money. So the guy from the state is like, I'm not going to let this guy fuck over the whole state of Massachusetts. Yeah, which and that's his job. I mean, he's the bank commissioner. Right. So that's why he's coming in and he's kind of looking at it at a different angle. Um, so what he did is he, he went to Hanover Trust, which is Ponzi's main bank, the one where he's got the controlling interest. And he tells them to report the daily to him, the bank's financial status. He wanted to know the amount of all the deposits and whether any depositors had overdrawn their. Hmm. And the bank said, no. And they initially pushed back and they said, absolutely not. Ponzi is the controls this bank. Like this is his bank. These are people. They don't have any loyalty. They just didn't want to get fired. And what, right. uh, what Alan said to them, he said, I, if you do not do this, I will hold 
it was the president and, and one of the directors. He said, I will hold you both personally responsible for any of the overdraft amounts on Ponzi's account. So if he's dipping thousands of dollars, it's coming out of your pocket. And immediately they said, okay, oh, <laughs> we'll play ball. <laughs> Y'all can have him. <laughs> yep. Uh, at the same time, your buddy McMaster's had seen enough. And after two weeks, he was only Ponzi's publicity man for two weeks, he went to the Boston Post with proof that the entire operation was based on fraud. Oh, this ship is going down quick. Quick, quick. Uh, on August the 2nd. Captain, my captain. Look, we, we just were talking about like the glowing piece came on the 20, July 24th. Then the, war, um, the barren piece comes on July 26th. Now we're... August 2nd, the Post ran a story under the headline, Publicity Agent Declares That Ponzi is Hopelessly Insolvent, Tells of Visits to Official. This is like going day by day at yeah, this point. We're, we are. We're going to be going pretty much day by day. So the, the story, I mean, it, it aired all the launch. And it claimed that Ponzi was $4.5 million in the red. I didn't even know you can get that far in the red. Yep. It, it's, it is, it just caused, this one causes a lot of panic and a lot of people start withdrawing money and it's happening very quickly and large amounts of bailing story. This was the one that kind of, I think finally turned the tide. The, the, the Baron piece did a little bit, but you know, it, it, he was able to kind of pay out and recover from that. This is when things start getting. And where's Ponzi at this point? He's still with the, uh, auditors i mean the audit's going on in the background ponzi's right. still going into the office every day you know he's he's in, he's assuring people that are lined up outside of his business that everything is fine and not everything's fine don't so don't this look. dude sees his ship going down and oh he's, yeah and he's scrambling but he's so he's like cool and calm when he talks to the newspapers and he's just like this is it's gonna we're fine everything's fine we're, we've got everything covered <laughs> like that dog meme. yeah the dog in the fire meme <laughs> this is fine um yeah. And, and the weird thing is, is as this was happening, like two things were happening. People were pulling out their money like crazy, but Ponzi was also getting like telegraphs from people all over the country because it's now starting to make bigger news telling him what a hero he was and how he was helping out all these, these little people. So like, he's got supporters the whole time, even after someone inside the operation, he says McMaster's only worked for me for two weeks. He didn't have any view into the financial workings of my company. Anything he says should be taken with a grain of making. Huh. Things. So you're trying to put the spin on it. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody's spinning everybody else. Right? Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, it's, it's really just like that. The little guy is just clobbered by this big system narrative and it, it still works to this day. I mean, it's just, right. it's really, really kind of amazing. He kept, um, then at that point, he assured his customers that he had offered all of his books to the authorities. And when they cleared his name, he'd be more than happy to have anyone reinvest in the securities exchange. Yeah. So he's saying, he's like, Hey, you know, we're, we're halting deposits, but it's because we're being audited and my name is about to be cleared. And I don't blame you for taking your money out now, but I will gladly take it once my name is cleared and you can see that everything. So does he have, I mean, do you think this is your opinion? Do you think he thinks at this point that everything will be fine? I, yes, I do. <laughs> I do. How? <laughs> I, I think he really thought that there's going to be enough people pulling out their money prematurely that could cover the gap in his books. Yeah. I think he, that's what he's betting on. So the next day, literally day by day on August 3rd, 1920, the Boston post ran the following story. This is the headline reformed wizard discusses Ponzi 520% Miller gives his views on Boston's get rich 
come to finance. No, wait, sorry. I'm going to start that over. Reformed wizard discusses Ponzi. 520% Miller gives his views of Boston's get rich quick comet of finance. So you remember uh, our buddy, Miller. William Miller? Grocery store Miller. He's back. I'm guessing you didn't have many good things to say about uh, old Ponzi there. You might be surprised. <laughs> so I'm going to read parts of the story. William F. Miller, known 21 years ago as the 520% Miller, wizard of skyrocketing finance and who served a term in Sing Sing, was found yesterday in Rockville Center, Long Island, the owner of a little country grocery store and of a small real estate business. Miller was sought for his views on the get-rich-quick Ponzi development in Boston, for it was through the Franklin Syndicate that Miller, the now reformed financier, put over one of the greatest swindles of modern times. So they track him down to his groceries. It says, since Miller was liberated from Sing Sing, he's traveled the straight and narrow path of honesty. Nothing could induce him to engage in any shadowy financial easy money proposition. He says he had learned his lesson and is profiting by it every day. Of He's now called Honest Bill. Yeah, because real estate is totally legit. Yeah, right? Especially New York. <laughs> So then this gets into like his, this really, man, this spins, this guy is such a good, 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 good guy. You know, he's just like, oh, how could you not? He's honest Bill after he stole <laughs> the equivalent of $31 right. million. Dollars. <laughs> so he goes into, he goes, in a typical country corner grocery store, such as are found today in small villages, Miller was found earlier Saturday morning in the suburbs of Rockville Center, Long Island. He has lived there for 15 years outside of owning the grocery store as a small real estate. The townspeople characterized the once manipulator of millions of ill-gotten gains as Honest Bill and say he's one of their most trusted citizens for whom there is the greatest respect in the community. <laughs> I love this. That is fucking wild to me, man. Like this dude stole millions from you, but he's Honest Bill. Yeah, he's Honest Bill now. Sitting on a Cracker Barrel, Miller chatted for half an hour after he had read clippings telling of Ponzi's huge profits and quotes. Of course, you know, I got into a bad jam some 20 years ago, said Miller with a smile. Say, this Ponzi must be a wonderful bird. If he is in the wrong, the authorities will show him up just as they did me. Uh, I would I wouldn't take $10 million and be in that young Italian split if he is not doing this thing. In fact, even if he is on the level, I would much rather own this grocery store where I have a few worries and breathe God's free, pure country air. <laughs> okay, I, uh. It's such a slap in the face where he's like, oh, shucks, I'm just an honest country store owner. <laughs> now, listen here, y'all. I ain't never did nothing wrong in my life. I'm just a simple grocery store I'm, owner. Y'all. I made a mistake 20 years ago, but we're talking <laughs> like he's from the South. He's in Long Island. So it'd be more like I'm going to do an accent. Oh, my God. <laughs> He'd be like, you're not for nothing, but like, you know, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just an honest store owner. You know, I'm sitting over here on a cracker barrel. What do you want from Oi! me? <laughs> I'm talking here. Okay, we lost, we lost New York. No, we're, 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 we're not doing ourselves any favors. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> so uh, that was on August 3rd. We're going to jump to August 9th. Um, Allen, the bank commissioner in Massachusetts, on information that Ponzi had overdrawn his account at Hanover Trust, ordered the bank to stop honoring any checks from the securities. Ponzi was completely frozen out of his main bank account, an account which had been overdrawn by $400,000. Woo! Sounds like somebody's up Ship's Creek. Yeah, so this is this is when things get really bad for Ponzi uh, and for people that were investing. Now they have these checks that aren't worth anything. So people are starting to freak out. Um, 
so you've got, again, you've got these two investigations, you've got the audit going on and then Alan working behind to figure out what's going on. Um, And it didn't go well. So the audit came back. You want to guess what it said? Oh, give it to me. It said that the securities exchange company was $7 million. Whoa, that's not good. I mean, the hit's just coming. The next day, or I'm sorry, two days later, there was another story about Ponzi's involvement in the Montreal bank incident that had happened 13 years ago. Oh, so all his uh, dirty laundry is coming out. Yeah, they sent a reporter to Montreal to see what he was up to. And so then they published a story about Zerosi stealing all. And obviously, again, Ponzi wasn't directly involved in that, but you just keep piling this stuff up on top of him as a shady character. And it's really damning. Um, Yeah, so he, at this point, I mean, we're, we're, we're pretty much at, the peak of everything that's been going on. He's just like his, his company is basically frozen. Um, the, the attorney general for the state of Massachusetts has a couple of plaintiffs who are, were unable to withdraw their $750 investments from the company. So he uses them to force bankruptcy on the securities exchange company. Basically they go into a court and they have proof that I invested $750 and I can no longer retrieve that investment from the bank, the court rules that the company is insolvent and bankrupt. So it, it starts this whole big proceedings where the bankruptcy court names, uh, you know, starts to kind of untangle this whole financial thing. It's a big web to untangle. It is. It is. So um, Ponzi got word that he was going to be arrested any day. And in typical Ponzi style, he walked in and surrendered himself to the authorities. It's my beer. Why? Why would you do that? Just pack your shit and go to Mexico. <laughs> he did it, but remember he did it before too. You know, right. when he was just like, "I'm guilty, you caught me." I, I just don't think he likes confrontation. I think I would rather deal with. Uh, I don't confrontation. There's no confrontation if you just go, just leave. There's no TSA. Get on a plane. What is? Is there planes yet? There's not planes yet. Just go, go somewhere. Yeah. No, that's not what happened. So he was charged on a federal level because it, it was it was dealing with the post office. He was charged with 86 counts of mail fraud because he used the postal service to notify his customers that their notes. So they really got him on a technical. They huh. said they said we're gonna we're gonna nail you. Postal any, any postal crime is automatically federal, um, and so he pled guilty to one charge to get a deal, and he was sentenced to five years in federal. Not that bad. No, for what he pulled off. No, and this is gonna flip out. When he, he's still very well liked, and the New York Times writes this like glowing piece about him as he's sitting in prison, and a few weeks later, <laughs> a few weeks later, again while he's in prison. He was a write-in candidate for the New York State Treasurer election. <laughs> he stole our money so good. Let's let him steal it for the government. Yeah, people love him. He's a celebrity. It, does, it, it just doesn't matter. They just, they're like, he, he, he'd be a great state treasurer. Look at, all, look at what he did for the little guy, the ones that made money. For the little guy, he stole their money. Yeah, yep. So he was released after three and a half years in jail. And immediately got popped by the state of Massachusetts. And so he he gets picked up and he goes, why are you picking me up? I made a deal. And they said, well, these are state charges. You made a deal with the feds. And he said, that, that should matter. I should be covered. And so he sues the state of Massachusetts. And this case goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court basically says, no, the fed and state are different. Like you can get mm. a charge with the fed and the fed is in no position to 
reduce a state's charges. After after went to the Supreme Court, Supreme Court settled it, and so that was the, that was that. Then he goes back to trial in Massachusetts. And he was facing 22 counts of larceny. He was convicted, and he was sentenced to seven to nine years of additional. He's in jail so much, and he hates it. He, like he wants to do anything but be back in prison. Like he just fights it. So he appeals this case. He pays his bond money and takes off. And where do you think he goes? Mexico. No, Florida. Because of course, fucking Florida. Oh. <laughs> say go Jaguars. Let's go to Jacksonville, baby. Yep. So we're going to, we're going to go, we'll go back to that in a minute. What he, what he kind of gets up to in Florida while he's on the run. Um, I just want to talk about like the fallout of this whole thing. It is, is enormous. Six banks, including Hanover Trust, were seized by the state and ultimately shut down because they were financially insolvent. They lost so much money. Um, so 20,000 people lost money in the scheme. And the only bright spot is that the folks that actually made money with Ponzi voluntarily gave the, the proceeds to the people that lost the money. So the, the ones that pulled out early enough and got their returns would take the returns and give them to people who lost money because they were saying, like, this is dirty money. I don't want any part of this. Like, and if it helps somebody else, let's do it. So yeah. humans being bros at that point. But, I mean, it, you got to think people lost their life savings. Some people mortgaged their houses to, to take that money and invest in this. I mean, it, it's really bad. And there's a lot of people. Um, in total, I believe they were given 37 cents on the dollar. It's kind of how most people net it out. So rather than increase their money by 50% in five days, they lost money. Um, you remember the furniture dealer? So the furniture dealer it was that once was claiming he was part Ponzi's partner and helped start this up immediately reverses his story. And he's like, I have no, nothing to do with this because he doesn't want to, he doesn't want anybody coming after him because this is all falling apart. Oh no, you settled. Buddy. Oh yeah. <laughs> so the, um, the investigators came in and the bankruptcy court took the settlement that Ponzi had sold him away to try and help pay back people that lost money. So he lost everything <laughs> that he gained by lying about being his partner, which I just say, good, Karma. good. Uh, the rival company, the old colony foreign exchange company was shut down immediately. And those fuckers went to jail. Yeah, of course. Yep. Um, it, yeah, it was just, I already said this, but in the end, less than 40 cents, the people received less than 40 cents on the dollar. So, and, and you, we were just saying how long it's going to take to unravel this thing. It took almost 10 years to refer, like unfurl all of this chaos that, that happened. Wow. Um, and the trustee, uh, the trustees that were appointed by the bankruptcy court every year as they were getting, like selling off assets and trying to gather as much money, they would send all the, a small payment around December until all the money's gone. But they still are just massive, massive losses. Yeah. Um, they're just trying to get what they can out of it at this point. Yeah. And they were, I mean, they, they tried their best to give back to the people that lost money, but it was never going to be the amount of money. Right. Um, it, another thing that happened was uh, Boston Post actually received the Pulitzer in 1921, specifically for the reporting on Ponzi and all the stories. Good for them. Published. Yeah. It was, it was, they did of, a really good job. Yeah. They really did. And, and you see, I mean, all of the stuff starts with, even with William Miller, all of it starts with the story. You know, yeah. all of it starts with the press. And, and I think the press played such a big role, much more back then than they do now, in terms of exposing this kind of 
Well, now it's they're playing to you know certain political parties more than trying to get you know what the honest truth. Well, they're also owned by these like giant you know conglomerate companies too. So, right. Um, that's a whole different podcast too. <laughs> so Ponzi's in Florida. He buys a bunch of land in a swamp, and he starts selling the strips of this land for a five hundred percent return. This scheme <sighs> does not last very long. Uh, partially because some of this, the land that he's trying to sell is actually underwater. Uh, it is a swamp. So. Yeah, I, I live about, uh, listeners, I live about two hours away from Jacksonville. It is nothing but swamp here. Yep, and that's exactly where it is. He's in Jacksonville. So, yeah, so they catch on to him pretty quickly. Plus, it, he's, he, I mean, he ran from the law in Massachusetts. They know who he, like, it doesn't take long for the Florida authorities to pick up uh, Ponzi. He is tried. He's convicted of, to a year in prison. He appeals. He makes bail. He gets the fuck out of there again. Like, <laughs> at this point, don't let this guy bail out. He's going to leave. Like, he's, right. he's this is now his pattern. He, he's gone. So his his goal at this point is to get back to Italy. He thinks that he'll have much better success and be okay if he gets to Italy. He boards a ship that's bound for Italy. Uh, he At this point, he's now changed his appearance. He's shaved his head, and he's grown a big, thick mustache, which is not what he looks like. And they, the ship was making several stops. I believe it stopped in Houston, and it stopped in uh, New Orleans. And Ponzi, because he's Ponzi, and he's always going to do this to himself, mentions to one of the, the people on the ship with him no. that, that he's Charles Ponzi. And he was using Why? Alias. Why and, would you do that? Because he could not. That's not his, like, he, he just, not in his brain. He can't not... <laughs> Say when well, you're I'm, trying to escape being Charles Ponzi, you don't yeah. tell people, "Hey, I'm Charles Ponzi." Yeah. So that guy ratted him out, and he got arrested when they were in port in New Orleans, and he got shipped back to Massachusetts and put in jail. Did they at least give him any uh, crawdads, some gumbo, <laughs> some dirty rice? I don't think so. Um, he. Yeah, y'all. <laughs> yeah. So he's back in jail. He, he serves a seven-year pre- prison sentence. While he's in jail, he writes to President Coolidge to try and get a pardon. Goes unanswered. He even writes Mussolini, who's then the leader of Italy, does not get a response. He gets out of prison, and he's immediately thrown into deportation. So the thing that he was trying to avoid for this time, whole time, it finally catches up. Um, he has this, I mean, it's it's kind of an incredible story. That has happened over the last 30 years. I mean, he's been in America 30 years. He spent most of that in jail. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but people still love him, even after all of that. Even after being out of the, the, the limelight for the last seven years, they, um, at his, he gives a final farewell speech. And the, the, the press is there. And he has this whole speech about how he had a big idea. He wanted to live the American dream and all this stuff. And people are just eating this up. <laughs> they love him. <laughs> There's nothing America it loves more than greedy, wild. rich motherfuckers. Yeah. So his, you know, his his wife stays back in the United States and eventually files for divorce. Uh, so once back in Italy, Ponzi tried a few different schemes with no luck. Uh, he found he finally found up. He finally wound up in Brazil working for the Italian airline Ala Latora. Um, Ala Latora didn't survive World War II. Completely shuttered. Ponzi stayed in Brazil. Um, his health declined. He eventually went blind and he died in Brazil completely penniless. Uh, that's a kind of an ironic way to go. Yeah. You know, I, I, he's a complicated one because he wrecked a lot of homes and lives and, and a lot of people. 
um, are just ruined as a, as a result of him. Right. But he's such a charming figure. I guess you have to be, but I just feel like some of these like scoundrels are just evil and awful. And, and he is too, but I don't know. He's, he's hard to dislike. Cause as he's doing it, people love him. Like there's still are just like charismatic. Yes. He's so charismatic. He's just, he's just this little Italian man. Um, <laughs> you know, he's not from every account. He was very tiny. Um, and once again, I, I do, I, I'm going to plug this one more time. Uh, Mitchell Zuckoff's book, Ponzi Scheme, goes into so much more detail than we could do here. This is going to be a long one. But he talks about the relationship, the, his latter life. He talks about the investigations that are going on and all the characters are involved. And it's a really, really good read. I mean, it doesn't read like a textbook. It reads like a narrative fiction. You know, it's true. It's a very good journalist and a very good writer. Um, so I highly recommend the book. It's worth picking up. One more time. That's what Zuckoff's Ponzi scheme. Go pick it up, everybody. Ponzi scheme. It's called the true story of a financial legend. And you know, he's right. He's, I mean, this is like the Ponzi scheme was named after. Yeah. So, you know, again, I I hope we don't downplay just how much devastation he, this one man with this one company was able to to cause because it's just unbelievable. I, mean, I I like to laugh and joke and kind of make light of it too, but this dude ruined a lot of lives and it caused yeah. a lot of harm to a lot of people. And I don't want us, you know, making light and making jokes and talking about how charismatic he is to take away from, you know, the harm that he did to people. Right. Exactly. That's, that's not what I want to. Right. Um, I'm trying to look up how much 20 million it's worth about 264 million. Good God. That's a and lot in, of money. And in seven months. Mm. That's what it is. And I think that's that's where the stability of Ponzi's like we they they happen so quick and they grow out of control so quickly and then they collapse so quickly. Like it's just fast, fast, fast. And yeah. when we eventually do a, a Madoff episode, we'll we'll get to compare what Madoff did differently to make his last for years because it's very smart, uh, very evil, but very smart what he was right. able to kind of do. Well, None of these guys are dumbasses. Nobody's stupid that we're going to cover. No, because you have to be smart to be able to scam this many people out of money. Yeah, and I don't, and I, I, I don't want to call like at first when I started writing this, I was like, Ponzi's kind of lazy. He doesn't actually want to do the work, but the amount of work that he was doing just to try and keep this company afloat is insane. I mean, he's like a million miles a minute. He's talking to the press, and going back and forth, and just running all around town, and you know, making deals and, and talking to investigators. I mean, it's exhausting. Like he really he busted his butt doing a very bad immoral thing <laughs> yeah I mean, yeah you're right so yeah what do you what are your thoughts you have any closing thoughts on mr charles ponzi i think uh, there's shades of gray to mr ponzi i keep going back to how he saved that girl's life in alabama by literally I, giving the skin off of his back yeah and i think that if he would have chose a different avenue, he probably could have done a lot of good in the world. Yep. But he just, he was addicted to that, you know, live fast lifestyle. Yeah. He wanted to be with the jet setters and the trendsetters and he didn't have, he didn't have the patience to work at it and get there the right way. Yeah. And I think, I think what you're going to see, there's no malice to him. He's not malicious. You know, he, I don't think he's going in with bad intentions. That doesn't matter because he still causes a lot of pain, but I don't think he came at it from a bad place. You know, yeah. I, I think he, he really believed that he could make a lot of money and other people could make a lot of money and everybody would be better for it. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I think you know what time it is. It's time to play Where in the World is James? Randy. Uh, this one's going to be bad. I like my second weekend and I'm already going to fall on my face um, because James Randy doesn't really deal with finance. Like he, if this guy was pretending to be a medium, he would go, Randy would be all over it. But yeah, there's really no correlation. The only thing I could find is that Randy and, um, and Ponzi were in Montreal, but they weren't even in Montreal at the same time. They were just they both like passed through, and it's so weak. I don't even want to say that. So they both went through Canada. Yeah, I, I and James Randi's Canadian, so that really is a that's a gimme. Yeah, there's no real crossover that I was able to locate. But if someone listening knows something that I don't, please let me know. I'd be really curious. If you catch my grift at gmail.com. That's it. And if it's yeah, he just just because Randy was really he was not dealing with financial crime um at this point and he was born after ponzi went. it's not even like they would have ever crossed paths in any way okay well what is on the docket what is up next for if you catch my griff what will be next week's episode mr austin so the plan right now is going to make dalton very happy uh we are going to look into eric von doniken who is the mastermind behind the ancient alien bullshit let's go (laughs) this is gonna make dalton very happy i have to make it interesting and so we'll see we'll see what happens i'm so excited for that but in the meantime you could check out our friends check out pod van dam check out iwtv guide check out super fantastic giving a special shout out to iwtv guide keep on the lookout for uh me and austin future episode we're going to go over there talk some wrestling if you're interested, swing by, uh, hang out with me, Austin, Charlie Butters, and Jayhawk. Uh, I want to ask you guys to give us a review, rate on Apple Podcast. Uh, hit that hard on Spotify. Uh, just download us wherever you get your podcast from. And we have Twitters. The our Twitter has changed. It is now at Catch My Griff Pod. You can catch Austin at Austin Gogo, and you can catch me at Catch Dalton. And I think that's about it. Yeah, that's all I got. You know, let's, this is, I think this is a good one because I think we're going to we're gonna talk about some other Ponzi people later on. So this really sets the groundwork. Oh, yeah. I'm really, really excited for what's to come. All right, Dalton. Bye. Well, the sun is set wherever you are, which is weird because I'm on the same coast. Uh, you're now <laughs> a, a dark spot on my screen. Um, so Yeah, I have all the blinds closed. Uh, okay. All right, buddy. Well, until next time. Um, until next time there is no such thing as a 50 percent return over 45 days so don't fall for that no dogecoin to the fucking moon baby let's go get it to a dollar let's make this fucking money people this ain't no ponzi scheme let's go dalton is not authorized to give financial advice and please don't follow (laughs) all right guys well we'll see you next time on we came up from nothing we started on this is most money but now it's the forbes list we really was doing shit i can hear echoes from feds on this beat from informants i think they recorded listen you hear that we might just get hit with the reaper. We might just get hit with the reaper.